0: What's up, everybody? This is episode 9 of the Trumpet Summit. My name is John Raymond, and today is Chris Bodie Day. (laughs) I'm really psyched to share this conversation that I got to have with Chris a couple months ago with you guys. And, you know, when I think about trumpet players over the last 30 or 40 years or so who have become household names, you know, like especially with people who wouldn't necessarily classify themselves as jazz fans, To me, the two people at the top of that list are Winton and Chris Bodie, you know? I mean, it's incredible the career that Chris has carved out for himself. But, you know, besides his output or his artistic vision or all the amazing people he's played with, to me, it all comes down to one thing, and that's the reality that Chris Bodie is a monster trumpet player, right? I mean, this guy has a ridiculous control over his sound, over what he wants to play. And we get into that a lot in this conversation, which was super cool. He uh, talked about studying with Bill Adam at Indiana University and sort of the culture amongst all the students and other players that were around at the time that just got him excited to practice, which was really cool to hear him talk about. Uh, we got into a whole bunch of stuff about microphones, reverb settings you know both for when he goes into the studio and he plays live which I haven't found that information anywhere it's like top secret kind of stuff right and he also gave some really great and timely advice to up-and-coming musicians who are trying to make it themselves which from someone like Chris Bodie is gold so you guys are gonna love this one thanks for checking it out here's Chris Bodie All right. Time for a shameless plug. There aren't any sponsors for this podcast, so if you want to support what I'm doing, one way that you can do that and actually get something out of it is by going to my website, john-raymond.com, and picking up a PDF or a hard copy of my new book called The Jazz Trumpet Routine, which is a fundamentals book geared towards creative improvisers that is essentially designed to rethink how we go about practicing and approaching fundamentals from the perspective of a jazz trumpet player. Okay? It includes over 175 different exercises that are designed for players of all ages, all ability levels, as well as for those who have any amount of experience in jazz or improvisation. More importantly though, the book is gonna help you develop an approach and a concept for how to do those exercises in a way that mirrors the improvisation process so that fundamentals and improvisation become one in the same. But the best part is that every single exercise comes with a call and response style play along recording that you can practice with so that you can hear an example of how it should sound and then imitate it yourself. And this is the whole idea behind the book is to develop such a vivid concept of how you want something to sound and then simply play what you hear, right? Trumpet playing is really meant to be that easy. So check it out, john-raymond.com. I'd appreciate your support. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm really looking forward to chat and thanks for making the time to do this.
1: Glad to be here, my pleasure.
0: So, you know, when I was preparing to, to get the chat with you, I was reading a whole bunch of interviews and just doing my homework on some different things that you've done. And one thing that stood out to me was that I felt like there wasn't any interview that got really in detail with you from like a trumpet playing side of things And, you know, to me, any success that you've had in your career, which has been incredibly significant, it starts with you being a great musician and a great trumpet player. And I guess maybe just to start, you know, I I wanted to ask you kind of what your vision was years ago. I mean, I've seen you in interviews mention that, uh, you know, when Wynton came along, you, you had this like... I think you kind of referred to it as like a glass ceiling of like, man, this is like as much trumpet is going to get played. And you felt like at that time, maybe you had to do something different to kind of carve out your thing. Is that accurate or, or, or how would you talk about that?
2: Well, I think that there's,
1: there's, especially with trumpet, um, being at the forefront of this, it, there's a, you know, that, I mean, I've spoken about in other interviews that there's a, a Sort of a train track, and the two rails of the track need to be tended to. One of the rails is your physical trumpet playing, how you interpret your sound, the things you practice, the things that you want to facilitate on your instrument so you can speak the language of whether it's jazz or classical music or what have you. And then the other side of the track is you, your personality, your musicianship the kind of music you like, um, your drive, your determination, all that stuff, the choices in life you make, the priorities that you set up as an individual, because oftentimes they will be a great entree or subsequently a roadblock into whatever you end up doing in your life, whether you're playing a trumpet or whether you're not, or either way is fine, but, but those two things need to be looked after with the absolute amount of care and I think a lot of times people think like, oh, you know, I, I'm I'm playing my trumpet playing's fantastic, whatever. And then they kind of step off into a, a a more academia approach of making records. I I sort of felt like, I mean, I still feel to this day that a lot of the the, the really really fundamental jazz is an extension somewhat of academia, um, which is great. I mean, you know, and 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 I think when you look at the marvelous musicianship and the, the, the prowess that someone like Wynton has or, or Roy Hargrove had, rest his, rest his soul. And, and uh, you know, or Jeremy Pelt or Nick Payton or whatever, you know, you can just in awe really love the tradition of that. And, but I also loved other records. I love pop music, sophisticated pop music. I love, playing the trumpet in a very lyrical way with real attention paid to the sound and articulation and I love a particular style of record making and I you know I've been really um, honest with myself about the kind of music that I enjoy listening to I mean for me listening to Keith Jarrett's Melody at Night with You which is the most simple record he ever played which is just so absolutely stunningly beautiful it moves me and that's what I want to try to do is is Move people's emotion. And sometimes that means, you know, you put a little backtrack and you're not crushing down three courses or five courses of footprints or whatever. You're doing something else. It's a different sort of, it's a different part of the railroad track that you're trying to access someone's emotions to move them via recording. And I would have never been able to do that at the time when I moved to New York and I was 22 and I saw someone like Winton or heard someone like Winton um I would never have been able to make that kind of record unless I was much much more older and away from, you know, school. I mean, although I thank the lucky stars every day I went to Indiana and I met Bill Adam and David Baker and they they were just fundamentally just so awesome and the whole culture of Indiana being the way it is and where it is geographically and you're not thrown off course by a city like New York, you know, and, 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 all the trappings that come with that. You're, we just practiced, you know, it was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> But totally. the, I just think, if you get older and you realize that there's other styles of music that, that, that you want to listen to or participate in. And, and I think that's been the bedrock of my career is kind of like juggling those two things, my deep, deep commitment for the, the nuts and bolts of the trumpet. And then my the the kind of music that i love and and when, and that moves me yeah totally in and amongst that thing the 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 parachute that makes you either stay afloat or not is you know what is your appetite for the road yeah i mean because all that stuff you don't you don't get to make record number 2 or number 5 or number 15 unless you can show your wares cuz you make records really literally just as a calling card to play music in front of people,
2: right. you know that
1: there there is no other joy that I've ever had in my life than to perform in front of people and i and I always think to myself, man the you know the actors as fantastic as they are, they get to come on stage that one day if they're the the blessed ones they get the academy award, they get to feel an applause right,
2: hmm. or
1: they get to go to an opening and they get to feel the applause and 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 but they don't get that thing that we get as musicians, that that spontaneous interaction on stage with your band members, and then subsequently the applause and being able to see people night after night after night after night. And you'd be shocked how many musicians don't like that. You know, they're not into that, you know, touring or being away from home or whatever. There again, you get into your life, things that you, decisions you make that, that subsequently impact your life in a big way. So I was lucky enough to like love the trumpet (laughs) love making records but most of all love playing for people yeah
0: yeah uh so just to get into some nitty-gritty stuff from like a trumpet side of things Uh um you know you talk about miles being one of your biggest if not your biggest influence is that right
1: well he's when i first turned on the television and and everyone was watching the carson show and saw doc severinson that's that was the Thing that made me say you know dad trumpet whatever you know yeah. um uh and but when i first heard that you know i knew i'd known about doc of course and maynard but i didn't know that other kind of function that the trumpet could have that maybe not so beyond the bell but like you know the more kind of you hear in your heart like that the, my funny valentine from the from the avery fisher hall concert with. Um, the quartet minus Wayne, it was George Coleman. Yeah. Um, uh, and when 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 Miles' trumpet playing was so vital to his, I mean, he was so far better in the '60s than he was in the '50s than he was with Bird. You know, like he, he's a real he's a great example of a guy that matured, which gives me so much more respect in a way for Wynton because Wynton had all that stuff together. You know, physically at least. You know, like it when he was really young. Miles didn't really get physically taught uh, and really elastic on the trumpet until late fifties and then all through that first eight years of the decade of the sixties, that was this real sweet spot. So when I heard that, that funny Valentine version with Herbie playing the intro and then Miles that sound, I was just kind of remember just listening to that record with Stella and, and, and all of you. And I mean, uh, you know, it just over and 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 over. And, over. and then that yeah. sort of, you know, made me kind of want thought there, and then that I wanted to become a musician. I mean, I didn't really equate all of the stuff you needed to do, but I mean, I knew then that I was committed uh, win, lose, or draw. I was going to keep trying. There was no plan B from that Well, I was 12 or something.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in your teenage years, early college years, whatever it may be, um, what were certain things that you took from his playing and you actively tried to like get into your thing cuz i i'm i'm sure like anybody who has a hero you're doing that to some extent right
1: yeah well i mean maybe in hindsight i made the mistake of trying i mean if i had not had met i met david baker at a, a jazz camp when i was 17 and through literally him being a charismatic individual I mean what do I know about you know the bebop scale or whatever I mean like I it wasn't one particular style of teaching that 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 brought me to Indiana still didn't know Bill Adam from anything at that point but I was attracted to this this larger than life charisma that David Baker had and his like his boundless joy for young people playing jazz you know it's 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 wonderful. It was wonderful. And so when I set foot in IU, man, I was like, I'd, I'd already studied a summer with Woody Shaw and a summer with George Coleman. Um, uh, it, maybe like right before then, I studied with 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 George first, and then went to college. Can't get it all mixed up now the years. But my point is, like, I really was was steeped in like the tradition of jazz. But I mean, I couldn't play above a B flat on the top of the scale, right? And so I turned up to IU and just heard these monster trumpet players practicing, you know, eight in the morning to midnight every night and, and not stopping. Yeah. And and uh through and I'd come to the Indiana University to study with a fantastic teacher, Charles Gorham, originally. But because again, of the kind of the acceptance and the the camaraderie, because that's important whether you're in a band on the road or you're in a, a trumpet studio in a college, you know, you need to have the camaraderie and the, sure there was cutting, people were trying to like, you know, outplay each other, but generally everyone accepted something. And that's a rare, rare thing. And Bill Adam sort of manicured that that sort of philosophy that we would all be playing the quote, the routine. and 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 we all sort of like worked out those chops and that was the real thing. So it really knocked me back. I was just like, "Whoa!" I mean, I can't play really the trumpet. Like I had ideas and I loved the the lyricism and I tried to take from Miles or Chet or the the the, the, the elements of space or the 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 attack or the, their really their vision for sound quality. Um, but but I mean, I couldn't execute a lot of it. You know, and so those three and a half years or three years, I guess, that I studied with with uh, Bill Adam, you know, that that really was the real shift in the Rubik's Cube, so to speak, for me to, to like, go, OK, you know, th- this is a physical instrument as well. You know, you just can't, you know, hey, man, let's go to the jazz club and just play jam sessions and it will happen. You know, there's a there's an eight a.m. for everyone, and you got to get in there and freaking work. Yeah. yeah, And 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 you just can't be the cool jazzer. You can with other instruments. It seems, but but trumpet there's there's a boot camp element to that you cannot disregard. And Adam, you know, chop chop, man. He made everyone realize that.
0: Yeah. Were you at the time? Were you like, kind of one of the main people at the forefront of the trumpet scene at IU? that was like a total jazz head, like into Miles, Freddie, Woody, you Absolutely. name it. Absolutely,
1: and I would fight nonstop. I mean, we laugh about it now, but me and Bob Baca used to like, you know, just have like crazy fights over like, you know, I'd be sticking up for Miles, or I'd go into a lesson with Mr. Adam and play him like Kenny Dorham, and he'd like, well, <laughs> he'd get all confused. You know, he's like, well, you know, young fellow, you know, he being so diplomatic and wonderful. he would be like, well, I think you should just go listen to, you know, Whatever, you know, like name it, Rafael Mendez or whatever, he would just say that sort of stuff because that's where he's coming from, right? And yeah. or or Doc or whatever. And so someone like Kenny Dorham or Chet Baker or Kenny Wheeler or something like that, he didn't get into it all. But you know, I was so uh headstrong and 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 trying to marry those two worlds together. And, you know, that's just, that's just a, I suppose, an act of being uh, a naive kid. I think that's really all it was. And that's what you're supposed to do when you're in college. You're supposed to be completely psyched about whatever you're into. And if you're into Fish or Freddie Hubbard, it's just, there is nobody better. You know, like that, that's cool, man. That's what makes college great, you
0: know? Yeah, totally. You know, I read that story or, or, or that anecdote that you shared about not really being able to play much above an A or a B flat in college and thinking to your playing now, I was like, dang man, like that's that's like a massive change in trumpet facility from what I hear you do at at the moment, you know. So like what what uh, what spurred that on? Was it just simply like getting in the motion of doing like a daily routine and just like doing the boot camp thing or what was it anything specific?
1: I think it it was a lot of that. And even when I got out of college when I got out of college and I came to New York and, and it wasn't long after that. And then I, I joined Paul Simon's band. And at that time, maybe I could, I could really sizzle up to get, get it right on up to a, you know, E flat. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that I really think that the, the trumpet is very similar to opera in the way that you know you don't really mature physically this whole the your your chops, your jaw or your airstream you know if your foundation is right, you just may not mature until much later, physically, like as a human being, you know the structure of your muscle set um and and you gotta be patient and it's mind numbingly difficult because trumpet players are one thing that runs rampant through all of us is we're impatient right, and so um I think that we, you know, we want we want to, (laughs) you know, not slow down and see if we can play the high stuff and see if we can play, you know, all the bebop and whatever. So, uh, it was. I know that I play much better now at fifty eight than I did at fifty than I did at forty. Freaking forget about twenty.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, like it's just like the then then all of a sudden you you compound that by touring and being in situations that you know, you literally have a gun at your head, no matter how bad you feel or whatever, you've got to perform. And then that does something else to your mind, you know, because there's gig chops. Michael Brecker always used to say this, man, there's gig chops and there's practice room chops, you know, and I was like, yeah, well, you have both of them.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, uh, you have everything chops, uh, but but I, but he's right, you know, and especially on trumpet, you know, there's like, you, you, you know, that they really help you know, the accuracy or the delicacy and stuff like that. And uh, by, I've had some failures and yeah, you remember those, you alternate, you know, you alter your.
0: You know, you were just talking about like this idea of getting in that live situation and having to execute. Like that's, that's what you gotta do. Uh, That's one thing about your playing that strikes me is like, I can't really think of a situation where I've heard you live or especially if I've heard you on record, that I haven't been like, yeah, he totally nailed that, you know? So I guess I'm wondering also, I'm I'm sure that was a process for you to develop. Um, How did that look like just being able to be, you know, in that moment and do it and do it every night?
2: Well, first of
1: all, you have to have the opportunity to go out and play every night because I've had some massive, I mean, I've told this story before. I remember, but I remember like I was, we flew from New, uh, maybe Miami to Tokyo, and via Seattle or whatever. It was a long flight, and I got into Tokyo, and I was in Sting's band at the time. And I thought, oh, no problem. I don't know, whatever. We we then we always get in the night before, and then we rest, and then, then the next night, super cushy, wonderful gig, and and so I didn't really play much for like two days. Anyhow, uh. I came down for my solo in uh, Moon Over Bourbon Street. And the Japanese audiences are very, very quiet. And, you know, Sting goes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Chris Bodie. And I could even hear myself pitter-patter of my feet on the big stage in front of the Budokan, which has many thousands of people. But that's how quiet everyone is, you know. And the first note was, ba-ba-ba-ba, up to our B-flat. And I just, bang, just... I mean, bop, 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 smack. I mean, it was so, such a miss. I mean, a really bad miss. And I turned around and looked and Sting was literally doubled over his base about (laughs) to piss his pants, he was laughing so hard. And I was just like, okay. And that was like 2000, right? And so I, you know, that was a long time ago. So I, and that was long before it was, I was out every night with my own band, but I remembered that. and. And and part of it, there's dual thing going on because it also made me really appreciate Sting as a band leader because I've been around my band where we've just train wrecked or someone in the band just train wrecks. And the last thing you want to do is pull a Buddy Rich and just get all dark on the person. you got to make fun of it, but it's also cool to let the audience in on what a train wreck it was, you know, Mm. because then that makes the audience feel that they saw something special. I've had lots of stuff like that in my band, you know. That's what makes being on the road fun. However, I don't want to make a habit of train wrecking on the trumpet every <laughs> night. <Not yet. laughs> right.
0: So, I, so what did you do after that? Like, was it like, oh crap, I can never let that happen again?
1: Any long travel days, like now when I go to Japan, which is every year except this year, um, uh, uh, now when I go to Japan, um, I always, you know, once I get in, we get in back to the hotel at six p.m. I don't wait that night. I. I, I put in a couple hours or something like that, you know, whatever, just even if it's soft and articulation and stuff and you know, I can probably get away with it now, but I, I'm just married to the routine and stuff, you know, and, and the, the, the pandemic has put me into more of a, just an insanity, you know, psycho drill sergeant version <laughs> of trumpet, you know, cause what else is there to do? You know, yeah. it, it's like, it's like I've turned into like the shining with valve oil, you know, like, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay,
2: whatever. Another few hours to practice. Great. Sure.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Um, you know, years ago, you mentioned to me in sort of in passing, I think it was like, I was about to play with my band after you had done one of your million sets at the Blue note. And, and I had just seen you for a second. And you said to me something like, Hey, you should check out John Hassel. Do you know John Hassel? And I was like, I had no idea who John Hassel was. And I also, you know, after the fact when I looked up who John Hassel was and checked out a little bit of his music, I was like, Man, that's a really deep cut he just gave me. Uh and I guess I was thinking of that in preparation to, to get to talk with you, and I was I was kind of wondering like who are some of those other like deeper cut trumpet players or improvisers that you are super into that one might not realize on the surface or something
1: well in all fairness you know i've i've it feels like i've grown up in reverse you know like i mean i was into the classics and when i was a kid like when i moved to new york or years after i moved to new york mark isham couldn't do a, a joni mitchell leg of the tour so so he asked me to take his place in joni mitchell's band for this one leg and it had like brian blade and and uh, uh, Larry Klein, and Greg Lease on, on, on Pedal Steel, and Joni, and that was the band, and there was this sort of alt community of, of trumpet players, I think Aysham would probably be in that category, uh, maybe Kenny Wheeler, if you're more of a jazzer, Hassle was used by like Katie Lang, and people like that, and kind of revered for the, the really alt, new is not the right word, but he had like it sometimes doesn't even sound like a trumpet, right? Yeah. That said, as the years have ticked on now, I'm just, I'm all in in the class. I mean, I can't, you know, I mean, probably this since last summer, there hasn't been a day that hasn't gone by where I haven't like at least for 45 minutes, listened to just one album. That's miles uh, at the black Hawk.
2: Hmm. I
1: mean, at, with, with, uh, Hank Mobley and red Garland and stuff. Just that album, not a bunch of other Miles Davis. Uh, actually, when I was on vacation, I listened to. Just, when I was out for two weeks, I said, "Okay, for these two weeks, all I'm going to listen to when I run is ESP. That's it. I don't want to hear anything else. I just hear the way those like those those phrases kind of fire off, and you know, just the shapes and the design that they were all chasing at that. But I've gotten so much more, you know, into Winton, Or I mean, I've always been into Win, but but like some transcriptions or some, you know, like just, or, you know, analyzing articulations or Lee Morgan at the lighthouse or whatever, way more traditional. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to turn around and make one of those kind of records whenever this finally does end and we are free to make records again. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, yeah, I just, I, i I've, I've really more and more, you know, I love the, the, and, and have much, not more respect, but I don't know. It just you get older, you kind of go back to your roots, you know. I think, mm. but in that '90s period, in some you know some artsy kind of way, there was a moment where I I, I liked I liked hassle I I don't really know anyone that even remotely comes close to playing like he does. I mean, yeah. it's just bizarre, you know, like uh, and wonderfully bizarre. Uh, but but I don't. I mean, I I, I don't really listen to them anymore or kind of like chase that. Mm.
0: I, I still remember that so vividly because it was like, it hit me like, wait, what? Who? <laughs> I, I was it's just not expecting it. You know, it was great. Um, so you're talking about being so into the stuff that we're all into, you know, as, as trumpet players. And yet I, I kind of go back to the fact that you to me don't sound like any one of them in the best of ways like you sound like you on record and you sound like you when you play live. And so I I guess I'm wondering, like, what's been your process for how to like internalize those recordings and even transcribe those people and yet have it come out in a way that you want as a player. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah.
1: When you're a kid, you try to emulate just your parents, but you don't ever sound just like your parents, right? Sure. Yeah. But what you can do is just like take little elements, little, I mean, the the most mind-shocking thing of the of the miles, uh, if you look at listen to is like no blues. He plays, I think five time four minutes, five minutes of like blues and F. And there weren't any real long phrases, but they were all between like E and the staff and f way up you know not you know not double f but you know f you know the high f you know there wasn't any cool like you know little bluesy licks in the middle of the staff it's just all this incredibly like powerful little jump street like whereas ben hank mobley comes along with the solo and all of his lines are kind of like way down low and way long and languid and very bebop scale very david baker and all that but miles is going ba -ba doop you know, all that stuff, all these slightly chipped off notes. And he didn't do that at other points in his career. And he couldn't do it later in his career because he wasn't physically there. And he didn't have the content or the courage to do it. You know, when he was playing with Bird, because everybody was playing cut, mute, and down. Man, this was just like, it's tough. But what you can do is try to analyze, you know, what makes that language that Winton speaks on the trumpet. How does he come to that craft work of his lines? How the frick does Tom Harrow weave those beautiful lines over and over and over? Um, it's, it's marvelous to study. And, and so you can, you know, we have time now, so that's what I'm doing.
0: So you were mentioning a second ago about, you're really specific about the kind of mic that you have, the kind of preamp that you have, the kind of reverb that you have. I've known that, I, I can just imagine how specific you are live and on record. And this might be like too, too secret uh, of information. Like I'm gonna get killed if you tell me or something. But I guess I'm wondering like, what were some specific things in the studio? We could start there, like in the studio, like what are you looking for in your sound? What do you, what do, you do on like the EQ side of things? Or what What specifics are you going for?
1: I, I, I play on, a, my records are all recorded. And- since when i fall in love i should say since the when i fall in love record which is now in 2004 so since that record i went to Capitol studios and there's two great things there's three great things that Capitol studios had at the time still he says al schmidt the engineer, is associated with him and he he let me play into that my uh into that sinatra i mean miles recorded and do it too like on I think sketches of Spain uh maybe hmm. not kind of blue because that was a that was a that was a 47 tele uh, uh, neumann 47 but uh it's a telefunken 2 251 to telefunken 251 but it's the famous one Sinatra sings comply with me and all that stuff yeah and, yeah and 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 capital studios had one of those so then the other thing they had they have their own beautiful reverb chambers um that that are below the capital studios and i always said you know like when i when i get buried i want to be like cremated and <laughs> my ashes put in that reverb chamber down there because it just it's just it just it makes everything sound great so that's what i use um uh um, when i make records I, I use this telefunken 251 and i don't compress the sound um, there's very little EQ at all. And, Mm. and I use that amazing reverb. Now, then I was going on the road and I was like, I was always really, really, really frustrated because I couldn't find, you know, there's a difference between a reverb and a world-class reverb because the world-class reverb gives you what I think is the reason that kind of blue sounds so great. Like, that kind of blue. They took Bill uh, Bill Evans's piano and they mic'd it and they dropped it down the the, the uh, they put through a speaker in the staircase at the studio in Columbia where they made it and then they hung a microphone down the stair. So you listen to that intro of of Blue and Green. It doesn't sound like all the pianists sound today. It sounds like this otherworldly, like cloud I mean it, right. it, like check out where it sits in the stereo field in that in that record the, st- the piano to best of my recollection is kind of left center like in this beautiful area the only thing that are in the middle of that record right up straight center without moving is the bass and trumpet and mm-hmm. everything else is sort of moved around sonically to allow room for the person and I think how you Navigate the chess pieces, and you're making your record. So nothing really gets in the way. And Joni was just like a stickler on that live. You know, like I remember she chewed me down one time so hard. She's like, "Chris, I'm the batter, and if if I'm in the batter's box and you're not giving me enough room, I can't hit the ball right. So you're cascade. You're you're getting in my way, right? I'm like, oh, okay. Sonically, yeah, yeah. I was just like playing too too many lines and stuff like that, and or that's content on stage, but, but her engineer at the time live would be like, you know, stickler for where stuff sits, where it's panned, you know, and how you, 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 what kind of reverb you put on it, et cetera. So, uh, I was always, when I started touring with my band, I was always very, um, particular, but I could never find a really high end reverb. And, and I did this duet with Barbara Streisand years ago, and I went into the studio with her. And they threw up this reverb, and I was like, "Frick, what is that?" And they said it's this brand new device that just came out, and they showed it to me. Now I knew about the 4ADL, uh, the 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 uh, uh, lexicon, but that's like a big, huge thing. You can't take that on the road. And it's the guys from 4ADL. They left, and they had this company called Bracasti, and they're out of um, uh, uh, um, Boston, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And it's a one rack space, unbelievably high end reverb and basically i mean i would recommend it to you know i play through a sure Mi- sure microphone and i have that i have a i i'm tried some different uh mic prees and i have a, a a neve it's called like a shelford or something the neve shelford like it's the top of the line neve one that i carry in the road so it's just like so i can sort of i know my trumpet's sort of bypassing the potentially not uh uh flattering situation that might be at a club or at a theater or whatever you never know like uh, you, you know you cuz cuz the trumpet is a very very finicky instrument like you can pick up a microphone in a rock concert and they can just give you game right and you can belt out yellow brick road you're Elton John right okay but the trumpet for as all its like muscular things that the trumpet has it's also really 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 delicate and if you're going to like bring an audience into you, you just can't come out and like play over the top. It's not going to be a shout chorus ever. Or, you know, you got to like do the dance back and forth. And so it it's a really much more fragile instrument than to get it to really sound with nuance. So you want the trumpet to hit the microphone and and that mic path to lead to something that it knows the same every night. Mm-hmm. You know, like it involves a sudden the gain is, I mean you could just plug your same microphone into like some crappy digital board and they've got like some gain tweaked out and it just comes out sounding like Darth Vader. Like there's nothing you can do. You can practice all day long. Right. And, and it's not going to be flattering, yeah. but I've, you know, over the years and years of trial and error, trial and error, that's what I've been playing now for the last few years. And I'm very happy with it. And still, and still like, I, uh, when, when we went to ocean way in LA to make my records, uh, Alan Sides is the, been the head guy at Oceanway for years. Um, they parted with one of those Sinatra mics for me, so I I bought it. I have it. I haven't made a record oh. on it because I, but I actually have one of those now. Um, those Telefunken's, but <laughs> so to be determined if it'll. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's great.
0: Yeah. So you felt like that uh, the Telefunken mic when you played on it, it it captured everything you wanted in your sound. Well.
2: I guess outside of, a, of the in, reverb in, chamber. in
1: in combination with the reverb chamber and sure. if you look at the old videos of Miles playing like Sketches of Spain, you see the telefunken hanging down, and Miles would play it at a certain. You got to really go in and first of all, you got to care about that stuff. Okay. Yeah. There is I a agree. there is a physical thing that happens to people when they hear. It doesn't matter whether Yu Zhao Wang playing classical piano or Keith Jarrett playing jazz piano. They're so technically beautiful, but also you want to hear them recorded beautifully, right? Because it is instrumental music. So you want it to be flattering, right? We're not trying to be the white stripes here, right? Or, or rock and roll, right? And so, so I would do take after take sometimes. or just like, oh, I, it's part of the problem of like with my clip on, I can move just ever so slightly if I'm in the moment but with on the studio mic, you kind of got to be, you, you could just move just a second off the sweet spot. And then all of a sudden the, it just, it doesn't sound as good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a p- particular, I know where my sweet spot is on the Telefunken's pretty much now. Um, but it, you know, it takes some trial and error and, and to a lot of people, they might like a Coles mic, or they might like a U47 Neumann or something like that. There's a lot of options out there, but you know, if you're in like a completely like, like a lot of my records are done with an orchestra, so they can handle a slightly longer reverb time, as long as it is a very very high quality reverb, so you can't hear the tail off. Like so, the, the When I Fall in Love record had the chambers from um, from um, Capitol, and you you don't know like it just gives the you know, I mean when Sinatra did Sinatra did that Sinatra Jobim record, and he's singing you know change places or something like that must we dance i mean he's barely singing you can go listen to those you can watch the clip of them doing they're sitting cross-legged and he's smoking a cigarette he's barely singing and the thing sounds huge Mm. and so that's part the microphone and part the mix and moving the stuff away from him so you get that voice right there in front of you and then you have to make it sound flattering so those are all, you know, he did all those records and, at, at Ocean
0: Way or Capitol, and, and yeah. that,
1: they sound amazing. Yeah.
0: So that was when I fell in love. What about like some of your first records? So look, in
1: the 90s,
0: I was like, uh,
1: really into like, I had my own studio, and I was into the Mike Crees and, and stuff like that. And then once I joined Sting's band, and I went on the road, and found out that I just Really love being on the road, and I was kind of like, well, listen, I'm going to live or die by the records I make and the trumpet playing, and not me trying to, you know, look over the latest EQ magazine and and uh, you know, I'd rather
2: yeah.
1: I'd rather play Lipslers, you know, like I don't know, like I, I just <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and and so my first records they were not quite as traditional, you know, and I, and I couldn't afford. The expense of having a big orchestra. Uh, the the When I Fall in Love record was recorded in London as well as capital at London and Air Studios, which is just like you know, like insane. You know, especially for an orchestra, it's like in this big chamber and and I remember playing like My Romance with the orchestra live. You know, in like one take or two takes, maybe it was one take or something like that. But it was so thrilling to be Jeremy lubbock who just now passed, the orchestrated this beautiful arrangement, and he had that orchestra playing at pianissimo so I stood right next to him while he's conducting this 60-piece orchestra and they're playing just so and but they have all these microphones dropped from the ceiling in this giant church and then the neumann was right on me or the telefunken and so you know you could play real soft do, do, de, do, do. And it, it'll get every single detail and clarity And still, a 60-piece orchestra won't drown you out in any way, and it's super inviting. Yeah, those guys knew
0: how to make records. (laughs) Man, yeah, that's amazing. You know, I was realizing, though, your first record came out in, was it 99? 95. 95. And you moved to New York in the mid-80s, was that right?
1: Yeah, uh, summer of
2: 84, yeah.
0: Okay, so you'd been in New York for 10 years. I mean, I'm sure, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but... uh, How much were you plotting that first statement and what you wanted it to be and crafting it in a certain way?
1: I wasn't. I was, I I knew because I'd been studying summers here with George Coleman and Woody Shaw, I knew I needed to not try to enter into the Wynton Marsalis fray because when he, that's when he was, you know, getting big. Yeah. And if you get an opportunity, there's a wonderful, wonderful documentary on, uh, on the Bee Gees that's just come out and it was really fun for me to see and bittersweet in a lot of ways but my first when I first moved to New York I was introduced to Arif Martin just one of the most legendary producers besides B.G.'s and all the unbelievable. you know Aretha Franklin I mean one of the most famous producers of all time um, and I was introduced to him and I became like the house trumpet section guy for Aretha and Bob Dylan and Scritty Pelledi and the system and all, all these things at the Atlantic studio with Arif Martin. Um, and Ahmed Erdogan was the executive for all those records. It was freaking fantastic. So for those first five years in New York, I did a ton of studio work. All of a sudden I'm in New York, you know, getting these calls to go do studio film dates or jingles or something like that. And it'd be like Randy Brecker or John Faddis, occasionally John Faddis, you know, he was, he was a, uh, not quite as available as as a lot of the other guys, but you know Lou Soloff, Lou Sooff was super nice to me, man, when I moved to town, Alan Rubin, the same uh we started doing tons of like you know uh wide world of sports and all those themes and stuff like that, and then at the end of nineteen ninety, I got the opportunity to, to join Paul Simons group, and that was you know standing next to Michael Brecker on stage with Steve Gadd, you know two year tour that pretty much you know, nailed it for me. Like I knew I loved the whole, you know, let's go out for three months and then take two weeks off. Sure, let's make it nine months and take two weeks off, right? You know, <laughs> and so I, I, I got into it. And then all of a sudden, you know, then you, you're standing next to Brecker every night and and practicing and hearing him and hearing his thoughts about stuff. And and then I w- uh, went to produce a song for the Brecker Brothers record. I think Michael was just being nice to me, you know, because I, whatever, thought I'd be a producer. When I got off that road with the with uh, Paul Simon, I had some money saved up, and and then I thought, okay, I'm gonna go make a demo and go out and try to get a record deal. That whole process took two years before I could actually make my first record, and it's back in the day when people were giving out record deals. You know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could get a you know development deal, and, and I got a couple of those before I actually landed a record deal with Verve Records, and yeah, and then I I think I made one, two, three, four records for Verb. And they dropped me because I took the Sting Tour. (laughs) And in hindsight, it was the best decision I ever made. But they thought I wasn't committed to my career by doing the Sting Tour. And I was like, well, wait, no, this, you know, X, Y, Z, it was a long time ago. But um, um, that led me to my record deal on Columbia, which I signed in 2000 and was with them until uh, this day, which I'm now I'm on Blue Note Records, but I mean, I haven't made a record for Blue Note because obviously current situation being what it is
0: so you were saying that experience on the road is what kind of led you to think like okay I want to do this for me because i mean you could have just kept playing in horn sections with paul simon or with sting or whoever right i mean well, why why do your thing
2: well first of all i i
1: i i, I really Value being a band leader and and having had the opportunity to work with three very radically different band leaders with any kind of intimacy, Joni, Sting, and Paul Simon, all so different. Oh my God! Um, uh, But I really think it's a great gift to be able to say I have a band and I I can do the music I want to do. So what sort of happened was is that. I'd gone on the road with, did that Paul Simon tour and Paul Simon's business manager, uh, um, Bill Zizblatt's his name, he's fantastic. And he was also working with the Rolling Stones and the Rolling Stones were looking for a horn section. And so Zizblatt reached out to me and said, okay, hey, Chris, can you put a horn section together? And you know, you define your life by your priorities and they change your life. I mean, the money was mind-blowing for me, right? To, to to say no to. But I I knew that I didn't really want to be in a section. I wanted to be a solo voice. And I think by staying on stage and, and seeing like Paul Simon, you know, who's got his voice is quite, it's not this big booming, like, you know, huge voice. And to see the way he worked his band, like it was like an orchestra, like it, you know, this moved in and out and goes to this, and then something had force like diamonds on the soles of her shoes, or you can call me out or whatever. But then there was a lot of stuff like folk, you know, like beautiful, tender. And I sat there every night and just sort of said, man, I kind of want to have that experience, not on that level, but you know, want to have that experience of putting my band together and see if I can get something to go. So when the call came in from the Rolling Stones, um, I got my three friends on to go do the auditions. Of course they got the gig uh and they mike davis and uh um uh kent smith and andy Snitzer, and mike was and kent did it until pff, i think just two years ago or something like that they were they did that gig for 20 years or 20 some odd years and and um uh and and in hindsight it was the best decision i made and they they it all worked out for them and but the, you know this is this is what happens they had went on to have families and stuff like that and i kind of just went on the road.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way you talk about it, it seems so simple. Like, oh yeah, this is just what I wanted to do, you know? Uh, But it strikes me just how much tenacity you must've had and still have to do what you do. I mean, you kind of talked about that earlier, you know, it's like to live the life you live, uh, you commit a hundred percent, you can't do it any less, you know?
1: I never realized like how much of a fight it is all the time, because when you're an artist coming up, you know you 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 get if you're lucky to get signed to a record deal, okay, know that that is the beginning of i mean a journey that could last one day or you'd be fighting to try to you know over here over here get some sort of attention and I remember in the when I was at Verve and then at Columbia, like what a different world it is now because man, like you could if some radio programmer didn't like you, it's like curtains. Like, you know, you just lose your whole career or you have a publicist that can get you on Oprah or whatever. It can make your career, you know, like, and then you have to find one of the key things you have to find a great agent. You have to find an agent. And it's one thing to find an agent that believes in Bruno Mars, right? That's kind of, you can see how that might work, right? A big pop singer, Lady Gaga, go ahead. but I'm, a trumpet player you know and I had to go in and convince that you know yeah I'm a trumpet player but I want to do like you know performing arts center and pop music places and stuff like that and they're like huh you know because they in the back of their mind they they could see the 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 the, the regal kind of conceptual historical status that went and brought to Jazz at Lincoln Center but I wanted to go over here and I was you know and I was pretty adamant about it you know and so I piled through You know my point of doing soundtracks or having different agents, and went through like you know nine agents, two managers, blah 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 blah, countless, countless uh, members of bands, and and reworking, rethinking, reworking, and and then you just you just turn up here, you know, like, (laughs) and it's it's a simplistic thing, but every single bit is a fight, you know, like the 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 inner working and the politics of, of of record. I mean, I I know. My career would have never reached this level without Don Einer at Columbia Records, who literally just, you know, opened up a bankfold. You know, he said, okay, well, he's done these four records at Verb. He, at that point, I had done two records at Columbia, and my manager, Bobby Columbia, who had had a long, long history at Columbia Records as an A&R man and knew Don Einer very well, went in as my then brand new manager because I replaced my former manager with Bobby and Bobby went into Don Einer and sat down and go <laughs> I mean it's like it feels to me like a my version of like a of, you know a mob meeting you know because basically Don Einer says listen I I like your your trumpet player guy but I'm I'm gonna drop him because he's only selling you know whatever two hundred thousand records or 200,000 for jazz records that was great right
0: right all right right.
1: And so Bobby said, you know, you know, let us take one more crack at a record that has nothing to do with like trying to chase a radio format. Don't nothing. Just let me give me a basically a blank check and trust me, Donnie. And Donnie said, all right, go. (laughs) The only thing I ask is he said, the only thing I ask is you have to cover time to say goodbye, which at the time I didn't really think about doing any bel canto crossover classical stuff. And we just threw that wild card to Jeremy Lubbock, who did the most beautiful arrangement. And so it's Don Einer that, that just kind of like said, OK, well, you do this for me. And, uh, you know, here's this blank check. And that record came in and and exploded. We were on Oprah and, and, you know, just and but, you know, you have to be in the right place at the right time and the right kind of feeling for people. And Do they really have your best interests at heart? Uh, and you'd be surprised, like, you know, how many people are just sort of, oh yeah, we'll, you know, we'll go through the motions with this guy or this girl or whatever. And, and, uh, and they, they don't really hear or feel that person. With Bobby, um, he gets me and I get him and we, we've had a, you know, very, very long history together now. You, but without his kind of like pounding the doors down, um you know, the same could be said for Winton with Dr. George Butler back in the Columbia days, because, you know, he really, you know, it's easy for us to, like, recognize how great someone plays the trumpet. But for people in the record industry, you know, they think Sade is jazz, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> I love no. Sade. Don't get me wrong. I, I, but they, to, to a lot of people, they, you know, or, or Amy Winehouse, I just love her. She's so jazzy. Well, right, Okay. Yeah. jazzy, Sure. If that's what your version is. So you're constantly as a jazz musician or as someone that wants to improvise on a, on a, on a monophonic instrument and not be a pop singer, you have a gigantic chip on your shoulder against singers, you know, like Mm -hmm. basically, you know, uh, or against the attention that the record business places on singers,
2: you know, and they don't,
1: they don't give us a fair shot at it at all. So I felt, I always just felt like I had to work 20 times as hard. I'm glad I did and all worked out, but, but that's, that's kind of a grim reality of, of a lot of things in, in, in jazz.
0: No, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, if you were coming up now or in the last five or 10 years, I mean, it's obviously a totally different landscape. Uh, how would you go about doing what you would want to do?
2: i i mean the sad reality is the landscape is changing so for 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 for
1: for jazz music is changing so we've lost so many 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 legends in the last year um i'm hopeful that there will be an audience for the art form Mm
2: -hmm.
1: i mean i mean a lot of people are not going to perform again or or have passed And the advice that I would say, I mean, I've worked with this fabulous young singer, Veronica Swift, she's a singer. So there's that to her arsenal, which is positive, but it's turned into much more of a long game. Like I think you need to try to cultivate some sort of live thing first and foremost, try not to let Instagram and social media rule your, your emotions and thoughts and somehow make it organic. Like, like somehow there has to be a way for a young person to break through this scene and become the next Dinah crawl or whatever Winton, whatever. And it's gotta be done in a much more smaller way. Like like they, there doesn't exist the record culture anymore where a guy like Donnie Einer could just open the floodgates. And even though Oprah wanted us on her show, but make that happen. Sure. Um, and because like no one's like watching TV, like, you know, you can't become a star really overnight, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I felt like I sort of, even though I put in the 15, 20 years to get to that point to a lot of people just thought I just became a star cause I was on Oprah. Okay, cool. Uh, and it was awesome. I mean, it was my, it was life changing, but I think for a young person now, um, you have to be able to impress the people in a local scene whenever that comes back for us. And from there, there will be a way. It's just going to take a little bit more patience Mm. than, than maybe it was at the scene when the Brecker brothers moved to New York or Sanborn or something like that when when everyone was just kind of like out and about and doing it and you know and, and and going for stuff right um I don't know what I would say you know I just say like work on your craft and try to um cultivate some even if it's like they're they're fantastic young trumpet players like Benny Benack here in in New York that is out gigging you know like
2: <laughs> know. Tony
1: Glousy they're out gigging know. like it They're out, they're out doing gigs when there aren't any gigs to be had. I have so much respect for that kind of like, you know, tenacity, you know, Um, it's wonderful. It's got to pay off somehow.
0: Yeah, no, totally. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I kind of wanted to see if we could circle back to Mr. Adam for just a second. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what were some of the more memorable moments that you had with him in lessons or things that, breakthroughs that happened while studying with him?
2: I think Mr. Adam was, it, a lot of his teachings, you got the positive
1: benefit of it from the pressure you felt from his students. Like if I would have studied with Mr. Adam in a vacuum, like if I would have just lived in the dorm and walked to my lesson once a week and done that lesson after three years, I, I probably would have been, man, that is a one great guy. It's fantastic. You know, I'm trying, maybe I could the closest thing I could equate it to is like a really, really world famous boxing gym. It's not just, the boxing coach. It's all the other guys that kick your ass and, you know, give you shit if you don't show up and practice or if you're slow on the sparring bag or whatever. And I, I remember my very first day, uh, coming up to school, some of the guys had known about me from David Baker kind of saying, Oh, this guy, this jazz kid's coming in from Oregon, whatever, whatever. So when I got up there, I remember Bob Slack is a fantastic trumpet educator and teacher and, 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 and trumpet player you know, he introduced himself to me and, and I, and it was like, I don't know, nine o'clock in the morning or something like that. I said, well, you guys are up here early. He goes, we've been here since six, you know, that's all Adam's teaching, but it, it, it kind of like throws you into like a path and you hear everyone doing, you know, the Schlossberg and the routine and they want to do it with you. Right. So you're, then you go get a coffee and you talk about the trumpet and you talk about, you know, the, you know, the Goldman studies or the, whatever the, the articulation or the Clarks, the blah, blah blah blah, blah or how you get from nota, how do you keep the 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 your sound in the front you know the all the things Adam said, but they were because he had such a connection mm. to people, then they accepted that and then they passed it on in the sheer volume of that third floor with all those things, all those students, and it was powerful i mean and 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 to this day, so many. Uh, Adam students relate to one another because they had that common, you know, that common bond. It's it's like Mr. Adam, and as the years go by, isn't just Tony Robbins, and you just go to like you know hear him speak, and you're changed. No, Mr. Adam had an effect on all these students who got together, and sort of in a weird way, Tony Robbins themselves to one another, Sure. vis vis a vis their passion for. You know the trumpet, a particular style of trumpet, a particular way you 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 the breath and 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 the long tones and the Clarks and the blah blah
2: blah
1: i there isn't a day I'm not very very fortunate that i that I studied with him, but I just think that the the whether you're a politician or you're a trumpet teacher that you don't it, the great ones just had that common thing to be able to like to captivate people's attention, to, to, to make them want to work harder, to make them want to be better. you know. And, and Adam had that, he didn't really, he never sniped at anyone. He never judged anyone, even when we all knew one particular person w- was never going to make it, like forget about making it, like could never like play that great. No one in that studio said disparaging words, it was a very, very accepting, wonderful thing. And and that whole uh, culture was started by Adam. Um, I remember him, you know, I would always want to know the answers. I would say to Mr. Adam, well, what about this? He would never tell me, you know, well, well yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like the way when I played him with Kenny Dorham, he'd get like a little, oh, he'd get a little flustered, you know, but he would just stay on point, stay on point And slowly, but surely those, you know, that wheels, it's, it's very similar to, you know, working out, you know, uh, you can run two minutes and then, you know, 20 minutes and then two hours, whatever. Like, it's just, but you have to be able to get through the monotony of being in the practice room. And Adam did that beautifully by congregating all these kids and, 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 and you know, spurring them on to like to like teach each other in a weird kind of way. Yeah, that's beautiful, man.
0: It's such a powerful thing. It's like his his teaching was being lived out every day with those interactions with each other. You know, I mean, you listen
1: to you listen to Jerry Hay or Carl Severs or Bob baca or Greg Wing or blah 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 blah. That that those guys. That's what that's what it was at the school. And that's and they just went on to live their lives like that to live there, and it's all just coming down from, i mean a cult sure whatever you call it you know like in the best of ways it was fantastic i was proud to be into it because i didn't come to indiana to study with adam right i i was just totally my friend dave herndon uh brought me up to the studio really for the first time to do routine and, and introduced me to mr adam and he didn't try to poach me from the other studio. It took me a semester to like make the switch over. But I mean, it was just, it was like a, it was like a freight train to come at me. I was like, I never heard this, you know, this sound and this excitement and this kind of like, you know, it drove all the other kids crazy at IU. Like the violinists would run for like New Zealand you know, like when they come to the third floor, because it was so loud with so many trumpet players. But it was fantastic. That's amazing, man
0: you know you talked about having like an approach of how you wanted to sound and and a conception of how you wanted to play bringing in Kenny Dorham to him or bringing in whoever you know uh so then how how did that whole experience shape how you heard your sound maybe is my question did it change it or or tweak it or uh, just i mean it gave me the physicality
1: to be able to then I mean, bear in mind, I'd practice all day with all the Adam students, and then I'd go upstairs and play bebop with Sean Pelton and Bob Hurst every night. You know, so I had like these two things going on. And when you when you're practicing Schlossberg and all that stuff, it's not the sensitivity of jazz for sure, but you want to be able to like articulate and be able to maneuver around the horn, and also be able to put air through the horn. You know when necessary like but when you're making music you have to forget about all of that uh technical stuff and then just play play what you feel just sounds so hallmark and generic but <laughs> you, you 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 need to like try to chase the things that motivate you in whatever that is uh style of jazz or the the way you approach phrasing or are you going to play you know more on the outside like tim hagan's or like you know then then that then that rabbit hole is unlimited you know you think the rabbit hole with the trumpets (laughs) you know the the rabbit hole with content of jazz and how you're going to approach it and you know are you going to be like a heady player or a fiery lee morgan or you know like there's so many many different uh uh, structures to that um and i am very unapologetic uh, about wanting to play music that's beautiful. And to a lot of jazz musicians, that word maybe isn't, you know, they want to be edgy. They want to be avant-garde, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Like, and I, I have no problem with, you know, playing music that moves people um uh in that direction. And, you know, I mean, my favorite shit of Miles Davis is like listening to him play old folks. Right. I mean, it, yeah. you know, while I'll, I'll go on a run for three weeks, playing ESP, the stuff that makes me like kind of like sit back and go oh god how does he do that you know is like him playing that you know or uh, the ballads and stuff the beautiful yeah. stuff that that's singular you know like it, you just can't riff off all that stuff at a jam session that's that's some that's some
2: other stuff
0: yeah okay so last question along those lines um i mean when i think about your playing i think about this beautiful sound and i also think about just how melodic you are And that kind of speaks to what you were just saying, I think, like, it's the way that Miles communicated this melody that just hits you in a way that maybe ESP doesn't, even though it hits you in a different way or something, you know? Um, So I guess my question is, like, was there anything specific that you did over the years to develop the sort of melodicism that you play with now or that you aspire to play with?
2: I mean, I think working with singers, especially, yeah, I mean, especially hearing,
1: being around someone like Paul Simon or Sting for that, you know, I was on the road with them five years and Sting became family to me, you know? And so I, I to, to be around singers, people, because a lot of jazz musicians have no interest in that. They 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 really wanna just, you know, let's call up whatever, Oleo and let's rock, right? Okay, but I, I love singers, you know, and I and I want to put myself in that same framework. So I think by working on my sound and working on the articulation, the, the exact the exact impact on the microphone of that first note, like and how it sounds on a harmon mute, you know, like to really like get the sheen on the quality of those notes, then to think like a singer, those two things first. And then if we need to like fire off some stuff to be a little, <laughs> you know, to yeah. to 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 say that that we're not just anemic in a way uh on stage is 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 super important. I think you need to take, you know, because like I always say like when people go hear Joshua Bell play, they they hear him play the Paganini, right? And then they they go, Oh my god, they stand up and they clap, 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 and it's fantastic. But that same couple that stood up at Carnegie Hall, when they go home, they listen to Chopin Nocturnes. They don't listen to Paganini, right? And so yeah. they're not at home just going, you know, they're listening to the beautiful stuff they, they, yeah. they, and, and, and I always thought there has to be something to that, but when you play, like if I went and just did a concert and reenacted my, when I fall in love record, obviously. You know, like, it's just too, it's just too, it's just too, like, you know, moody in that dri- whatever, that kind of way. You need yeah. to, like, take the people on a bit of Paganini, so to speak, and a bit chops, the lack of a better word, yeah. and then you need to, like, but you need to, at the core, make it so you're moving their emotions with the impact of your sound, whatever that fingerprint is of your trumpet sound, then... I just try to like place myself as a singer would like on mm. the stage playing, you know, not in a big band way, like, you know, like, like a singer would like maneuvering the stuff around me like a singer would yeah. uh, and then, and then
0: when I need to do the stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. If you wouldn't mind hearing me for one more. Whatever, whatever. Okay. All's good. I don't want to take too much of your time. No, um, I, I'm, which I guess that's all we got right now. I'm here till 2022. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess like looking forward for yourself, do you have any specific artistic or creative goals for yourself in the next 10, 15, 20 years or however long?
2: I... A year before
1: this pandemic, I um, participated in this Doc Severinsen movie, and man, if there's a guy that's done it and grown gracefully old, and 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 is is something to really really look up to, it's him. And at the at the forefront of for the next however many years is just to physically make sure that I'm in top enough shape to play the trumpet because quite frankly, it'll back up on you. Like, you know, your trumpet sound will all of a sudden be brighter. Like you can't, like, huh? Or you can't remember. So, you know, all the things that aging does um, is going to be the number one thing that I'm going to fight against uh, to make myself play the trumpet. I'm not as concerned with, you know i want to be able to tour with my band and enjoy my life because that is my life you know i don't have kids and i don't i haven't gone off and done xyz or something like that i'm really a lucky individual that can tour as much as i can can go in front of an audience and play music and move on to the next city i'm not trying to like start a vlog and 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 be all like you know what kind of latte am i drinking obviously i don't really do do any of that stuff so <laughs> I, 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 it's a very old school kind of way that I want to roll into town, play a concert. And then a year and a half later or two years, A, are we asked back and B, do more people show up when we come back? And that's, I want to keep it rolling as long as I can and make records that I want to make. I'm not trying to like veer off into some, you know, I'm going to make my version of a Jack Johnson, you know, rock album. So, Not not my thing,
0: but, you know, yeah. Do you have a record in mind once all this is over?
1: Uh, I think it's going to have to be a little more stripped back than certainly impressions. And uh, (laughs) I think uh, those budgets are are long gone, but uh, I don't know. You know, honestly, it's so interesting because, like, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to get the muscle of playing with other musicians. I mean, I haven't like sat, I haven't stood on a stage and played since April, uh, sorry, since March the 10th last year. Um, so I'm sitting here, you know, hopeful for all of us, all the young musicians and the older musicians like myself, that a a scene will return, some sort of, you know, ripple effect, some sort of enthusiasm for for live concerts. Once that comes back, then people are going to want to go into a studio and make music together. and I've always felt like I've been best when there is a gun to my head. And I say, okay, hold on a second. You have to have a record done. It's now July and you have to have it done by October. Okay, let's go, bang. I mean, when I fall in love, we conceived that record in that meeting with Don Einer and and Bobby Columbia and myself. And that's when he said, play time to say goodbye. And he goes, you make this record, this beautiful string record, we'll have a glass of wine when you're back and I'll promote it. But we did that in one second, I walked out and called Gil Goldstein and Jeremy Lubbock, and the record was basically I sat with Billy Childs, and we went over a few things and came up with the nuts and bolts of it in a week hmm. and And then it's just kind of like making sure that it's recorded beautifully and and you play deliver the melodies. and I, you know that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but but I think that most of the time, at least in my life, I've never had a really great idea months before. <laughs> it has to be like, uh-oh, oh, the train's coming, well, I'll either move out of the way to this side of the track or move out of the way to that side of the track and and that'll be the decision I've made, you know? All yeah, the yeah. pre-planning, well, I'm going to make this kind of, you know, blah, 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 Yeah, It yeah. never really works out.
0: Just roll with it.
1: A little bit, or at least give yourself a smaller window. Like that's what I'm saying. If you work on your craft of the things that you can't roll with, the trumpet playing, the attack of the trumpet, the signature sound that you have, then whether you make a record that leans a little more this way or a little more that way, as long as those things are in really, really fine form, I think that the opportunity for success is good.
0: Boom. Mic drop. Chris Bodie. There it is, right? If we get the trumpet together, that is what sets us up. To do anything that we want to do, we can make music however we want to make it, but we gotta tame the beast, right? We gotta have control over this instrument and put in the time and be tenacious enough to get the trumpet to sound how we want it to sound. That's what it comes down to, right? All right, episode 10, it's the last one, season one. It's been quite a ride getting into it, talking shop with all these incredible musicians. I hope you guys have enjoyed it so far. I know I have a lot. And uh, this last episode is going to be a little bit different. We're going to do an AMA, as the kids say these days. We're going to do an Ask Me Anything. So you can send me any questions you want about trumpet playing, improvising, making your own records, business stuff, life, whatever you guys want. All right? Hit me up on social media or send me a message via email. I'll get to everything I can in an hour. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. It'll be fun.